June, July, August, September, I'd say are all pretty well booked. Even March, April and May, we're already looking at 85% occupancy. That said, there's new rules coming in for Glasgow and Edinburgh city centres in particular. You need to get planning permission as well to effectively change of use from residential to serviced accommodation. Whether or not that would be the same across the whole of the UK, would be quite interesting to see that. You're listening to Expat Property Story, a podcast in which I share my story to smooth the way for you to have your own Expat Property Story. Hello there, Two Fat Ladies 88. It's been a while since we introduced the show with bingo nicknames, and they only go up to 90 anyway, so I thought we'd better get them in while we still can. That was Mike Hanning, who is a Hong Kong-based expat from Edinburgh, and if you invest or are interested in investing in Scotland, or if you're wondering how the short-term letting landscape may pan out in the rest of the UK, then this is the episode for you, as Mike talks us through the opportunities and potential pitfalls of adopting a serviced accommodation model in his hometown. We'll be hearing from Mike before you can say Inverness, which was the first place I ever visited in Scotland, when I must have been about seven years old, and I absolutely loved it. So, make yourself a nice cup of tea, and perhaps a slice of Dundee cake, and enjoy the ride. Now, I don't know when you're listening to this episode, but I know for a fact that the other listener religiously tunes in on Thursday mornings at about 8.30am Hong Kong time on her way to work. And I know this because it's my wonderful and long-suffering wife who's thinking of setting up a support group for partners of podcasters, as anyone who lives with a podcast producer will tell you how much time gets stolen from them to provide free content for everyone else. So if you haven't already done so, it would give us a big boost if you could be so kind as to leave us a review. And I hope it hasn't gone unnoticed that I never ask for a five-star review. An honest one will be fine. Now, I was only kidding about the other listener bit, as we've got listeners all over the world. One of them is called Brit in Jerusalem, and he, or she, left the kind of review I would have written myself if I was going to cheat, although I'd have probably used more than the ten that Brit in Jerusalem used. This is what he or she succinctly had to say. Best property podcast out there for expats and non-expats alike. That's so good, I might have to change the podcast tagline. Thank you, Brit in Jerusalem. And if you want to help us out, why not leave a review wherever you get your podcasts or at www.expatpropertystory.com, which is also the place to go to sign up for our mailing list if you haven't already done so. If you have already done so, then you should have received our second newsletter by now. So check your inbox or your junk folder where it really doesn't belong because there's loads of great stuff in there, including information around national insurance contributions to boost your state pension, auction updates, private rental sector trends, tenant reports, statistics from the Office for National Statistics and lots, lots more. So at a time when it's more important than ever to keep in the property loop, then sign up for more free content with no strings attached. Now, my wife is a big fan of Scottish accents. She's still going on about Jerry Alexander, my guest from back in episode 38 in the auction season. So she'll be happy to listen to this week's guest, who's an expat from here in Hong Kong, and who finds himself at a crossroads as he maps out his future expat property path. And while Scotland is always worth keeping an eye on thanks to its stunning good looks and attractive yields, doing so is especially important right now 
as the current changes in the property landscape north of the border could potentially leap over Hadrian's Wall and creep down into England. So it's high time we plug the gap in the expat property story archives and adjust our lens towards the north. But before Mike and I talk all things property in Scotland, we started with his property song. My property song would be Passenger, any of his songs, to be honest, because when my friend drove me back down from Aberdeen to Edinburgh after a rugby game, and he was the guy that told me about Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that is effectively what kickstarted all this off for me ever many years ago. And the reason I got a lift with him rather than getting on the, the bus was we were going to see Passenger play in Edinburgh. So he was the one that put me on to Rich Dad, Poor Dad. If I hadn't been going to see Passenger, then who knows, I might never have kind of taken a start in property. I asked Mike to explain how the Scottish system of buying property works. In Scotland, the surveyor or the seller will need to get a home report. And if that home report was £200,000, that is what you're able to get a mortgage for. The way the Scottish system works, particularly in Edinburgh, is that it tends to go to a closing date, whereby there'll be a number of sealed bids. And to be competitive in Edinburgh, at least a few years ago, you'd have to go maybe 10% over whatever the home report value was. So if the home report was 200, you'd probably have to go up to about 215, pounds to be competitive. Whereas the mortgage provider will only give you a mortgage on the valuation up to 200,000. When someone is marketing their property as offers over, it's very unlikely the price will be the same as the home report value. The offers over figure is usually, not always, but usually lower than the home report value. This is to try and attract as many potential buyers as possible. Most of the time, vendors will be looking to sell at a higher price than the home report value. The offers over strategy obviously works much better for the seller in a hot market when there is more competition between potential buyers. I mean, I've heard people say that England should follow the Scottish model and that the Scottish model is better. That sounds terrifying to me. I hate the idea of sealed bids. Are you happy with that? Would you prefer the English system or the Scottish system? I think they've both got their pros and cons. Maybe as a home buyer, as opposed to an investor, I think maybe the Scottish system does work well. It goes to a closing date. You've got certainty. And when that's done, you know where you stand. There's no coming back a couple of months later or whatnot and either being gazumped or whatever, because I know that happens in, in England. It just means that you ultimately are probably going to have to pay more than what you want as a home buyer, potentially. Edinburgh is a relatively popular place for buying property. So you need to come up with your deposit and a big chunk more. So it was a bit of a, a struggle to get in. But eventually, after a couple of years of kind of saving and, and whatnot, I was able to buy just a small two-bed flat. Bought that in my own name with no intention of actually ever living in it. But I knew that we were going to move to Hong Kong in the coming year. So I then asked for consent to let from the lender. So I purchased it in the November time. And by about the April time, we'd rented it out. That has been rented out ever since to the same couple. So that is coming up six years that they've been in it. So it does okay. It's gone up in value a bit over the years. It just covers itself. It's not particularly good, but my money's definitely uh, growing in that property. So I've just kind of left it for the time being. We then moved to Hong Kong and then I was able to purchase another property again in Edinburgh 
with the intention of making that into a short-term accommodation. So purchased the property, needed a lot of work doing, and was trying to do that throughout COVID from Hong Kong. So it was a bit of a, a learning curve going through the council, getting approvals, was wanting to remove a wall and, and input some steel. So yeah, just had to go through that whole process and then obviously furnishing it and getting it ready to then rent out to the short-term rental market. That's been up and running for just over a year now. It's doing well, actually. Um, but there'll be some issues in the future down to the, the Scottish government changing the rules. So. so both of these properties are on the outskirts of Edinburgh or central Edinburgh? or One is in an area called Leith, which is quite central, and another is more suburban, not quite on the outskirts, but just kind of halfway. So quite a built-up area next to a decent primary school and secondary school and stuff. So just your kind of normal suburban area. Yeah, I know Leith from Irvin Welsh books. Oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. I guess it's improved since then, is it? Mm. Particularly the, well, actually the whole of Leith is definitely going through a massive regeneration and has been for a good number of years. A friend of mine in Hong Kong, he has a place in Leith that they used to live in and a couple of other really close pals, they live at the bottom of Leith Walk and a while back that wouldn't have really been an option. But nowadays, yeah, lots of... Now it's quite trendy. Yeah, for sure. Particularly a lot of, I'd say, yeah, young professionals, young couples are looking to move there. And that was the reason for wanting to do the the essay there. It's really close to the city centre, walking-wise. It's only 15 minutes to Edinburgh city centre. And it's still relatively cheap compared to a lot of other areas within Edinburgh city centre. I heard someone describe Edinburgh as the mecca for serviced accommodation the other day. Yeah, I've got a year's worth of data now and it's very strong in terms of the numbers. The ROI you can get from doing it is so much higher than just a, a regular buy to let. I mean, you've got the festival, haven't you? The Edinburgh festival. How long does that go on for exactly? That's the whole of August. The rent you can get, or the nightly rate, sorry, for August is, is really high. But June, July, August, September, I'd say are all pretty well booked. And I think even March, April and May, we're already looking at 85% occupancy, which is, yeah, really good. And that'll continue throughout the summer. That said, there's new rules coming in as of the 1st of October this year that will probably throw a spanner in the works in that regard. We'll be back with the podcast in a second, but I just wanted to let you know that we help high net worth individuals who perhaps don't have the time, expertise or contacts to find deals that stack right now. We can offer fixed rate returns of up to 12%. So instead of watching your savings get swallowed by inflation, why not schedule a free call via the link in the show notes to see how we might work together. Now back to the pod. The Scottish Government has introduced a licensing scheme for short-term lets, making it illegal to operate without a licence. Those running short-term lets before October 2022 will have to apply for the licence before the 1st of October 2023, but can continue to accept bookings while the application is assessed. New operators will also have to apply, but they will not be allowed to accept bookings during the application period and the situation in Edinburgh and Glasgow is even more tricky. For Glasgow and Edinburgh city centres in particular, you need to get planning permission as well. 
to effectively change of use from residential to serviced accommodation. And that will need to go through the councillors and they can either approve or deny effectively your application. I guess that they're going to do that in the UK as well. I've heard that there's plans for that to happen in the UK. So I'm guessing that maybe they will copy what's happening in Scotland. So everyone should keep an eye on Scotland to see how that plays out. But I'm hoping and presuming that those that are already up and running will have what's called grandfather rights in HMO terms, which gives you the right to operate it as an HMO. So I'm guessing they'll do the same. Have, have they got that far with the legislation in Scotland yet? The initial date for the, the legislation to come in was the end of March, start of April. But with such a short period of time, the councils weren't able to actually roll it out within such a short time frame. So it's been pushed back to October and you've got till the 1st of October to submit your application. In terms of grandfather rights, I think they do exist for properties that you can prove have been essentially serviced accommodation or short-term rentals for 10 years. So it goes way, way back, which I would say a lot, particularly in Edinburgh at least, are definitely not that old. From the people I know that do have similar businesses, I don't think any of them do qualify for those types of grandfather rights. Whether or not that would be the same across the whole of the UK, it'd be quite interesting to see that. So those grandfather rights, you have to have been running your service accommodation or your holiday let for 10 years? I think you have to be able to prove that it has been used as a short-term rental at least 10 years ago. But that is only for Edinburgh and Glasgow city centre. I think in the other councils and maybe more the, the remote areas, that is not the case. You just need to get a license so that you can rent out your property as a, a short-term rental. The way forward with that is to make sure that whatever you're buying does stack as a single let first and foremost, because you may have to go back to running it as a single let. Yeah, and that is my kind of fallback position anyway. I like the numbers, obviously, in terms of the, the short-term rental, but I always had in the back of my mind that if things did change, it can always just go back to a normal buy-to-let and it can just kind of sit and tick away, albeit the, the numbers wouldn't be anywhere as good, but it's a long-term play anyway. So, A lot of people use as a ballpark estimation that you double your money from a single let when you're running it as serviced accommodation or as a holiday let, and you're in the perfect place to answer this question in Edinburgh because you've got one that's a single let and one that is service accommodation. Does it work out about double? For me, it's maybe three to four. Wow. It's a huge difference in terms of the actual numbers. The single let would make maybe 200, 250 pounds a month, whereas on average, I think the, the short term rental could make up to 800, 850 a month. After all your finance costs and everything. Yeah, extracting mortgage and council tax and internet and bills and, and all that type of stuff, it still makes a significant amount of money. And again, that's just my very limited experience in it in terms of, I don't know how that varies, say, around Edinburgh, but yeah, just from my two, that is a huge difference. And ideally, if the rules hadn't changed, I probably would have tried to do another one, at least in, in terms of cash flow. And I know that you've been speaking about different ways and or potentially HMO or short-term lets recently on a few other podcasts. And it's, yeah, it's definitely a, a really viable option. Like most expats running serviced accommodation in the UK, Mike has a manager taking care of everything for him. To be fair, the guy that has done my property management for me is actually a friend. And he helped me a lot with 
actually the purchase. I never viewed the property to purchase it. He went and viewed it for me. Does he have other properties he's running as well? It's actually a, a contact I had before moving to Hong Kong. He runs and manages a, a few of his own and a few for other people. I just kind of get the monthly report and, and have a review of it. I think the issue is that these rules are coming in and effectively it will make it very difficult. So from speaking to him, he said if the rules do come in, he'll probably just sell the, the properties he has in Edinburgh to get out because it just doesn't make as much sense. So I think he would just step back completely from the, the managing of them as well. I don't think there will really be that many to manage. I believe there's another issue in Edinburgh around shared access. So tenement buildings that have multiple properties in them and shared access. What's the situation with that? And is it only in Edinburgh or is it Glasgow as well? This is relevant for both Edinburgh and Glasgow, but from doing a bit of research into the rulings so far on any applications that have been submitted, the key point is the shared access and how that is not safe for residential tenants within the tenement building. And Tenement buildings are so common in Edinburgh and Glasgow city centre. It's where a lot of short-term rentals are being run from. So, yeah, it's effectively a, a blanket ban on any tenement building that has a shared access, which is all of them. So that's the main ruling. And I've gone to the depths of watching a couple of council meetings on Zoom, basically to see what the rulings were like and, and what they talked about. And that was the main point. And they managed to get through a handful of the, the reviews very quickly, just based on that one point. So that would be applicable to my building and other people that I know that have short-term rentals would have the same issue. So this is all putting you in quite a position, isn't it, Mike? On the one hand, you've got this really good opportunity of serviced accommodation in the mecca of serviced accommodation, Edinburgh. On the other hand, you've got all these potential new rules that are coming in. And then on the third hand, if that makes sense, you've got this whole change of landscape for Scotland anyway, in terms of how much you're allowed to increase the rents on single lets. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, so at the moment, the rules have changed on that. Again, that was brought in around the same time as the short-term rental licensing and planning permission rules. There's effectively been a rent freeze in Scotland since last September, and that ended at the end of March this year. That was to do with the cost of living crisis. And as of the end of March, you're able to increase your rents, but only at up to 3%. I think you can change it up to 6% if you can prove that there's been significant costs that you've incurred as a landlord. But generally, it seems to be 3%, which considering everyone's costs are going up and whatnot, it's limiting, particularly in my situation. At least I've had the same tenants in for six years. So I've increased rents every year, but it's never been significant. And it's easier just to have the same tenants and they're really good tenants and just look after the place. So from my point of view, that's not a big issue. but Mortgage costs are going up. Getting an expat mortgage is quite difficult. So the rates are already not as good compared to when you're living back in the UK. So yeah, the numbers are now getting very tight in terms of does it even make sense? So if you're limited by the amount, you can increase your rent to 3%. And yet interest rates have gone up, like you say, for mortgages. Is it still viable to run single lets in Scotland? Yeah, it's a good question. I think you have to just be quite particular about what you're going for, making sure that the numbers do work. Across Scotland, there's there's lots of other areas that definitely would work. There's a huge range. I think Edinburgh is probably the most expensive city to buy in, in Scotland. But outside of that, 
there are a lot of cheaper places, so the, the yields can be a lot better outside of Edinburgh. I'm from Edinburgh, so that's the reason why I've kind of stuck there so far. But I am considering other areas, potentially Glasgow or areas around Glasgow, potentially Dundee as well. That's not too far from Edinburgh and has a relatively good market. But again, the purchase prices are a lot lower. So slightly less risk on that side and the yields are higher. So you can deal with these kind of fluctuations a bit better. I asked Mike how it all works in practice. So if my tenants left now, I could align my rent with the market. And once the tenants come in, then after that period, it can only go up 3%. But my property is now definitely under where the market would say it was probably by 100 to 200 pounds. It's not a huge difference, but it, it definitely would just make the numbers slightly better. But at the same time, a month's void wipes out all of that kind of difference anyway. So if you do have a month's void period in between tenants or whatever, then it's not a huge difference in terms of the cash flow. That's the way I've always thought about it. So I've always been kind of happy just to let the tenants stay there. So are some people thinking, well, you know, as a buy-to-let investor, to sell the property they've got and then buy somewhere else where they can set the rent maybe at market value? Yeah, so that is one thing that I am considering is uh, do I sell up there and potentially look outside of Edinburgh and buy maybe cheaper properties and then you kind of spread your risk a little as well doing that? Or yeah, do I sell and then reinvest back in Edinburgh, maybe a different area or in a slightly different way? But at the moment, the last couple of months, I think I've been dragging my heels a little just to see how things are, are panning out. And I think things have kind of panned out now already. So I do need to kind of make a decision on that and just execute it. But as I said, it's covering itself at the moment. And from my point of view, that's fine. There's no joined up thinking at all in the housing problem in both Scotland and England and Wales, I guess. They introduce these measures which have good intentions. You know, they're trying to protect people renting in the private rental sector. But if people are thinking, well, maybe it's better off that I sell in Edinburgh and then move out, that is lowering the amount of stock available for people to rent. They're shooting themselves in the foot because there's fewer properties to rent, which means the demand goes up, which means that the rents well, they can't rise in Scotland, but in England, they're certainly rising because of all these sort of anti-landlord measures, if you like. Yeah, exactly. And I, like, I can completely understand the short-term rentals and the want to kind of bring back stock that is being used for short-term rentals and put it just for the either standard buy-to-let or first-time buyers or, or whoever it is. So I completely understand that. But yeah, you're right. In terms of the rental cap, and then forcing people or making people make a decision as to whether or not they want to continue investing in Scotland. If the properties are sold, they don't continue to be rented. So you are just reducing the stock of rental options for people that do want to rent. And I definitely think you need that in Scotland, particularly in Edinburgh. Most people do want to rent until mid to late 20s, at least out of, of all the people I know. And also when people are selling properties, you know, they sell them with vacant possession to get a better price and to make it all easier. So those properties are sitting empty while they're trying to sell them. So there's even fewer properties for rent. Being able to kind of evict someone so that you can sell property is adding more issues because even if the new buyer does end up buying it as a buy-to-let, then there is that whole process of the eviction, which is then not helping anybody even if it does go back onto the rental market. But with the numbers, it's probably less likely that it will, and it will just become a, a residential property, which 
I think partly the, the government same, which is again fair enough, but I think they're doing it to the detriment of the private rented sector. With all this, you must be tempted to head south, no? Yes, I am. And it's funny, I listened to a few different podcasts and one I was listening to today, they were saying that it makes more sense when you invest where you know, you've probably got the strongest advantage in terms of you understand the lie of the land, what works, what doesn't work compared to investing somewhere completely new. And then other podcasts that or other people I've spoken to think the complete opposite in that you can just look at a spreadsheet, purchase it, have it rented as a buy-to-let or, or whatever, and then just don't let your heart sway your mind. But yeah, I'm still uncertain. I don't know if it's just because I feel comfortable in Scotland or I kind of want to remain investing in Scotland. But yeah, it's definitely something I'm considering and how I would do that, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But it's definitely something I'm looking at at the moment. I'm also looking at potentially purchasing tenanted property. So you kind of go through that process where you don't need to evict anyone. There's a tenant in situ and you can purchase property usually from another landlord and just continue the tenant, which is quite efficient. And those properties seem to have a little bit of a discount in in Edinburgh, at least just because it's more of an unusual sales process, I think. But again, the, the numbers aren't amazing, particularly if you were to look outside of Edinburgh and maybe further afield down in England. And how do you find those properties that are already tenanted? I've spoken to a few people in the the last couple of months. There's a couple of specialists that kind of deal with that. And that seems to be their kind of business model is to source and sell tenanted property. I know that there's one or two in Edinburgh and similar in Glasgow as well. And they do a whole host of types of properties, be it smaller or larger properties. So that's one thing I'm looking at. I've got the funds to maybe buy another one or two properties. So that's the target for the next couple of months. What about the situation with mortgages? I've heard the pool of lenders is slightly smaller, especially for expats. Yeah, I got a mortgage last year, specific short-term mortgage for the serviced accommodation. And the broker was telling me that there are fewer lenders, but it was still fine. The rate was okay. And I, I managed to get that secured before everything went a bit mad later on in the year so was that before the the so-called cami quasi budget (laughs) yes exactly although the mortgage didn't actually complete until november but the rate had been locked in from around august time i think it was so what would you say has been the biggest challenge building your property portfolio so far the redevelopment of the flat was quite tough particularly during covid it took longer than i'd hoped and not being able to fly back at all throughout that period. As you know, Hong Kong had a very strict three-week quarantine and whatnot. So it meant that I wasn't able to go back, whereas I probably would have. There's lots of just little odd jobs, particularly when it comes to furnishing the property and getting it looking nice for a short-term rental. There's just lots of little faffy bits in terms of furniture, cutlery, all those little odd jobs that just need a few days of driving around and just making sure picking things up and whatnot. So that all took way longer than I'd hoped. I was lucky my brothers live in Edinburgh, so they helped me out. And my architect friend thankfully got COVID right near the end. He asked if he could stay in my SA for a week or two, which was great. Not that I've ever said having COVID was great, but it meant he could go in. He did loads of odd jobs for the the two weeks that he was there because he was staying there for free. So in the end, that worked out well. 
just all the little odd jobs were done and it meant the property could just be rented out a little bit quicker. It's hard to find someone that wants to go around and hang a couple of paintings and put a TV on the wall, particularly when you're so far away. But these are kind of things that you could easily do if you were there. The first point of reflection from this week's episode is the need to keep in the property loop so as not to get caught out by the raft of changes such as the ones introduced in Scotland in recent times. These changes make the life of time-poor expat property investors even more challenging and reinforce the idea that the days of the part-time landlord may well be over if you don't keep on top of things by listening to podcasts like this one and signing up for newsletters like ours and this month's edition has a link to the government's announcement regarding the start of the consultation process regarding short-term lets in the rest of the UK. And if you don't have the time to keep up with all the changes, perhaps it's worth thinking about investing with those who do. The second point of interest is one we've heard a fair few times before on this podcast, and it's the value of having someone in your chosen investment area that can help you out if necessary. When Mike was unable to leave Hong Kong during covid he was able to fall back on both family and friends in Edinburgh to put the finishing touches to his new serviced accommodation unit. The third and final point of interest from today's show is the concept of rent freezes, which were introduced in Scotland and may well rear their ugly heads in other parts of the UK if politicians look for short-sighted ways to appeal to landlord-hating voters. It doesn't take a genius to work out that freezing rents will only reduce supply as landlords look to exit the market. And on top of that, those in existing rental homes are incentivized to stay where they are and may experience a poorer quality of housing as existing landlords cut maintenance costs to compensate for their reduced income. This means that those looking to rent for the first time will come up against higher rents if they can find anywhere to rent at all. And all of these problems will only get worse if, as expected, the population keeps on rising and the government fails to meet their targets for building new homes. So who suffers most when rents are frozen? It's the tenants, stupid. For the final word on rent freezers, what would Elsa from Frozen say? Let it go. Rant over. What's on your travel bucket list? One thing that my wife and I have talked about doing is hiring one of those tiny Fiats and driving around Italy and enjoying all the amazing things that this wonderful country has to offer. So this week's exotic listener location is Reggio Emilia, which is just a half-hour drive from the more well-known Parma, famous, of course, for its ham and cheese. If you're our listener from Reggio, as the locals apparently call it, get in touch and let me know one thing you're struggling with at the moment. And if I can help, I will. And if I can't, I'll try and point you in the direction of someone who can. Either way, I promise to get back to you. All that's left for me to say is to share the show to spread the word. You've been listening to... Extra.